Please turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. I was out at the college retreat last weekend. I understand I picked a, a good weekend to be gone. Apparently, uh, for those of you who missed last Sunday, I guess the storm knocked out all the electricity in this whole building, so everything got moved over to the other side. And I kind of felt like that was justice, because when I was a college pastor and I would fill in over here, it seemed like electricity would go out, or, or the sound system would go out, or projectors wouldn't work, or air conditioning, something like that. So I felt like it was kind of like balance in the universe coming back that I was gone on that Sunday. When uh, I was about four or five years old, I was sitting in the car with my sister and one of her friends. It was, it was after church and my parents were still inside talking. And so we were sitting in the car waiting and I was in the front seat. My sister and her friend were in the back seat and I was just kind of bored. So I was fiddling with the knobs and I was punching buttons, turning stuff back and forth. And I punched in the, the lighter. Now, you students, you, you know, may not even know what a lighter is in a car, right? Because it's not standard anymore. You have to pay extra to get a lighter. I guess the auto makers don't want us smoking or in their cars or whatever. So anyway, years ago, that was standard. You always had a lighter. And so I guess I'd never punched this thing in before, but I pushed it in and I just kept filling with other knobs. And a couple minutes later, it popped out. And so I reached down and I pulled it out and it was beautiful. <laughs> I was red and glowing. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. And I began to reach to, to touch it. And apparently I caught my sister's eye and she said, don't do that. And you know, she's an older sister. She thought she knew everything about everything. I'm like, I don't want to listen to her. You know, she just knows what she knows. I, I just want to find out. I just really didn't want to believe her, right? So I began to reach again and she says, don't do that. It will burn you. But I just had to know. And I just had to know for myself. And so I, I reached in and I touched it. And you know what happened? And I, oh man, I burned myself so badly. It hurt so bad. She was right and I was wrong. It was a terrible moment in our relationship. <laughs> My sister is wonderful though. I mean, she always took care of me. She guarded me. She protected me. She cared for me. She ran into the church and she got my parents and got ice and she took care of me. But I began to learn some really valuable lessons in life. Uh, one is that there are certain things that you do, certain actions you take, and they have inevitable consequences. You make a, this choice, this will occur. It's just inevitable. I also began to learn that temptation always holds an appeal. Right? Temptation it always promises something. It, it always seems like it's good. I mean, that, that glow was beautiful. It was just saying, touch me. But if temptation didn't have that inherent appeal, then we wouldn't go for sin, right? When Eve looked at the tree and she saw the fruit, she wasn't looking at a rotten tomato or something that was smelly and nasty. She looked at a piece of fruit that was a delight to her eyes, good for food, desirable to make one wise. You know, last week, Matt began to talk about Genesis 3 and talk about temptation. And Satan came at Eve from every different angle. And that source of temptation itself held an inherent appeal. And when Satan began to deceive her and caused her to begin to lack gratitude toward the abundant provision that God had given, the, the entire garden, and began to sow seeds of doubt in her mind about the goodness of God and the truthfulness of God, she gave in to that appeal to temptation. 
Temptation always denies the, the consequences that will come when we actually give in. And so last week, Matt talked about temptation itself. This week, we want to talk about the, the consequences, the things that inevitably resulted for Adam and Eve and that have resulted in our own lives because sin has entered the world. Now, I want you to begin reading with me back at the beginning of chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Now, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. She gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Now I want you to notice that uh, the curse has not yet fallen. Adam and Eve are simply, simply beginning to experience the inevitable consequences of their choice to sin. I mean, the effects or the consequences of sin. The first thing that they experience is shame. Shame. Notice chapter 2, verse 25. Chapter ends like this. It says, The man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. That's hard for us to even imagine, but they had no clothes on and they were walking through the garden. They were doing their work day in and day out and they experienced absolutely no shame. Why is that? Well, because there was nothing about their bodies that they should be ashamed of. In fact, they probably had amazing bodies, right? Adam and Eve's bodies were, were perfect. They were unique physical specimens. There was nothing about their bodies that they should be ashamed of. And even after they sinned, there was nothing about their bodies that had changed. What had changed was inside their heart and their minds, their perceptions of themselves and their perceptions of one another and their environment. And they no longer felt safe with one another or safe with God. And so they felt ashamed. Previously, they had been safe under the covering of God's protective authority. And when they stepped out from underneath God's authority, then they were, in fact, vulnerable. They felt vulnerable and they felt ashamed. Frederick Buchner made this very insightful observation. He said, What we hunger for, perhaps more than anything else, is to be known in our full humanness. And yet that is often just what we also fear more than anything else. When they were naked and they were unashamed, they were intimate with one another and intimate with God and innocent. But now they feel ashamed and they cover themselves 
because they experience fear. Okay? Shame and fear. Previously, they had walked with God in the cool of the day. They'd been confident in their relationship with one another. They'd been confident in their relationship with God. And now, God comes to the garden and he finds them hiding in fear. They're, they're afraid of God because sin always produces fear. And sin always produces fear. There's a story that's told by a man named, about a man named Noel Coward. He was um, an English director. According to the story, he sent identical notes to 20 of the most prominent men in London. The note simply said this, all is discovered, escape while you can. And every single one of them, those men fled from London. He didn't know anything about their lives. He just wrote them a note. All is discovered. Escape while you can. Sin produces fear. It says in Proverbs chapter 28, the wicked flee when no one is pursuing because their sin produces fear. Shame, fear, and deceit. A deceit enters into their relationship with God and their relationship to one another. Remember, Eve was deceived. She was tricked by the serpent. But Adam made a willful choice. A willful, knowing choice. But the moment that he did, he became a deceiver. The moment that he did, he began to work up lies and half-truths. Why? So that he could protect himself. So that he could step away from and deny responsibility. Notice in chapter 3 and verse 11, it says, The Lord God said to him, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? In other words, the Lord gave him an opportunity to come clean. Gave him an opportunity to confess, to tell the truth. And rather than telling the truth, what does Adam say? Verse 12, the man said, The woman that you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and then I ate. Right? And I think the only reason he didn't blame anybody else is because there wasn't anybody else around. Right? He, he, he refuses to take responsibility for his own actions. Why is that? Chapter 3, verse 10. Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. Who is Adam thinking about? Himself. He doesn't say we. Man, he has, he has thrown Eve under the bus. I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked so I hid myself. Adam's mind, his emotions, his will are all bent toward himself, toward self-protection. Sounds a little like our culture, doesn't it? We live in a culture that is narcissistic. People think of themselves and they deny personal responsibility. And we're shocked by that. But that all began in Genesis chapter 3. The moment that Adam sinned, that infected us. Read with me chapter 3, verse 5. It says, For God knows, this is the serpent speaking, that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Was that true? Was it true? Satan says, The day that you eat from it, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Is that true? Half of the truth, right? Temptation always promises so much. 
and denies the consequences, denies the fact that sin brings destruction. It was true in the day that they ate of it, they gained the knowledge of good and evil from that tree. Okay? God even says so later in Genesis chapter 3. Man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. What does that mean? Well, I think that the knowledge of good and evil is moral autonomy. Okay? When they ate, they gained moral autonomy, and it destroyed them. Right? Only God can possess moral self-rule and not have it destroy him. When mankind tries to be morally autonomous, that is, live outside of the rule and reign of God, it is destructive to mankind because we are dependent, contingent beings. We can't live outside of the umbrella of God's authority. That is the safe place for us. So when Adam took the fruit, he became morally autonomous. He gained the knowledge of good and evil, and it destroyed him. Romans chapter 1, it says, Professing to be wise, they became fools, for they exchanged the truth of God literally for the lie. Not a lie, but the lie. What is the lie? It's the first lie that happened in Genesis chapter 3, which is, you can be God. That's the lie. That's the fundamental lie of Satan. He is a liar. He always lies. And this is the first and foremost lie. You can be God. You can be morally autonomous. You can make your life work without God. Well, it'll destroy you. What Satan tempted Adam and Eve with was partially true. Because temptation always offers something, but it denies the consequences. It denies the destruction that comes with sin. So as it says in Proverbs, bread obtained by falsehood is sweet to a man, but afterward his mouth is filled with gravel. Wow, that's graphic, isn't it? Just imagine for a moment taking a handful of gravel Well, it goes in and it tastes like bread or like a piece of fruit plucked from the tree. Or as it says in Proverbs, like the young man whose friends come along and say, come on, enter into into an agreement with us. Let's all cast our lot together. Let's take from those who have earned. Let's steal. We will never get caught. We will become rich. We will be safe. There will be no consequences. Or the man passes by the adulterous woman and she says, come on in here. My husband is gone. There will be no consequences. No one will find out. They'll never know. It's all good. And there's no bad. Instead, you take that fruit, you take that bread, you take that temptation. And as soon as you do, it becomes gravel in your mouth. There are consequences. Sin promises much, but delivers death. So they begin to feel the effects of sin in their lives. And the curse hasn't even yet fallen. They begin to feel the natural and inevitable consequences of sin in their lives, and then God begins to pronounce the curse. I want you to read with me Genesis chapter 3 and verse 16. To the woman God said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Then to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you, and toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it will grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread, until you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you will return." Verse 22, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. 
And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent, sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Okay, first, for man and woman, the curse falls upon their labor. It falls upon their labor, upon their effort. It falls upon each of them uniquely. In an area which should have brought just incredible joy and pure satisfaction in life, instead they will experience pain and toil and frustration. For the woman it comes, it says, in childbirth, but the word is literally conception. It says, in pain you will conceive. Now, conception is actually not painful. What he's talking about, I believe, is the entire process of bringing children into the world and raising them. So it includes infertility, not being able to get pregnant. Pregnancy, the pain of delivery, stillbirths, mother dying in childbirth, raising children who don't walk with the Lord, saying, in pain, you will reproduce. This thing that should have been pure joy will now be a struggle because of your sin. It gets to the very heart of a woman's self-identity. Same for the man. Adam, you are going to struggle, and it's the same word for pain. The woman will bring forth children in pain. The man will labor. It says he will toil. He will actually work in pain. It's the same word. He'll work in pain. He's going to struggle. Where he should have pure satisfaction in providing for himself and providing for his family and getting an abundance that he can share with others, he's going to struggle. It's going to be hard by the sweat of his brow. And then he's going to end his life, and he's going to go back to the dust, and he's going to die. And Ecclesiastes says it's going to be frustrating. Work is not part of the curse, but now we work under the curse. And so we have good days and bad days, and good jobs and bad jobs, and jobs that are fulfilling, and then sometimes jobs that just simply are not because of the curse. Cursed labor, cursed relationships. Read with me again verse 16. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. And in pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. That last phrase is challenging to interpret. This is what I believe it means. Your desire will be for your husband is not her physical desire for him, but her desire to rule over him. Your desire will be to rule over your husband. The reason I believe that is because the only other time this word is used in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 7. Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. The Lord is speaking to Cain. In verse 6, he says, why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, but its desire is for you, but you must master it. In other words, Cain, sin's desire is to master you, but you must master it. Eve, because you were unwilling to not try to be God, you wanted to be in control of yourself and your life, and you wouldn't stay under God's authority. Because you were unwilling to submit to God, you will also struggle to submit in your marriage relationship. 
And instead, your husband will dominate you. In other words, inside of the marriage relationship, which should have been safe and secure, you will feel vulnerable. If you have a good husband, he will love and cherish and honor and protect you. But if not, he may dominate you and cause you to live in fear. Or he may retreat the opposite direction and be like Adam and not protect you, but be passive. Remember when Satan came and he tempted Eve, Adam was right there. And he didn't step in. He didn't intervene. He didn't correct Satan's falsehoods and guard his wife. Instead, he stood there passively and he waited until she took the fruit. And some, some people have said, yeah, he took the fruit. He let her take the fruit and take a bite to see if she would die. And then he took it himself. We don't know, but he didn't protect her. And so women in this most intimate relationship, men in this most intimate relationship that should bring pure joy and pure satisfaction, there will be fear, struggle for power, domination. It doesn't have to be there, but the curse will affect your relationships. First, with your spouse. Second, and more generally, with all of creation. Man's relationship with creation is not going to work right. Adam is told, you're going to go and you're going to work the ground so that you can feed yourself and your family. And instead, what's going to happen is it's not going to bring up wheat. It's going to bring up thorns and thistles. And they'll poke you and you'll bleed and it'll be sore and it'll be frustrating. I have a thorn and thistle yard. And I, Actually, a few weeks ago, I have a neighbor. He's a pastor, but his background, he was trained in landscape architecture. And he called and he left a message on my phone. And as he's driving by, he said, hey, Brian... I think that you need some help. I mean, literally. <laughs> He's that kind of friend. He goes, I, I, I think you need some help. Can I, can I create a landscape plan for you and help you put it in? Because I, I confess, I've never won yard of the month. I mean, literally, I got, a, I got a thorn in a thistle kind of yard. You may not. You may have a wonderful yard. And I know how you got that wonderful yard. It was by toil and sweat and pulling weeds. And I just don't like doing that. So my yard remains, you know, the, the eyesore of the... Neighborhood a little bit, but it's not bad because it's a wooded community. <laughs> it's called xeriscaping, right? It's just na- I'm just natural. The untended garden. Thorns and thistles. Paul says in the book of Romans, we know that the whole creation groans and suffers together until now. Earthquakes. Drought. Flood famine. The earth is groaning. Why? Because of Adam's sin. Cursed relationship with spouse, with all of creation, and worse, worse yet, with God. Genesis chapter 3 describes this curse that's fallen on our relationship with God as death. Okay? It's the curse of death. Read with me chapter 2 and verse 17. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat, eat, eat freely, enjoy. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Did Adam die in that day? Oh, he, didn't, he didn't even get sick. Right? He, didn't, he didn't get a disease, he didn't break a leg. It didn't, physically, it doesn't seem that anything happened to him in that day. But he, he did die in that day. He, he began to experience what we describe as spiritual death. Okay? Spiritual death. 
Because God took Adam and Eve and he threw them out of the garden. Okay? Death, biblically, means separation. Right? Death in, in the Bible is not annihilation. It's not ceasing to exist. Death is separation. And now Adam and Eve were living separate from God. And God posted a cherubim and a flaming sword. And there was a barrier. There was no way that Adam and Eve could enter back into that perfect intimacy with God. They couldn't reinitiate that. They were separate from God. We call it spiritual death because the New Testament tells us the spirit of Adam was separated from the spirit of God. They were no longer unified spiritually. That is spiritual death. New Testament also tells us that unless this problem of spiritual separation is resolved for a person, that they will experience eternal death. That is separation forever. That's spiritual death. In that day, you will surely die. He experienced spiritual separation. He also began to experience physical death. He began to experience it. Little by little. I believe that Adam and Eve had bodies like ours, bodies that would grow old, bodies that would degenerate, but they had access to the tree of life. And what I think is the significance of the tree of life was that it was a continually regenerating source for them. In other words, they wouldn't just simply eat from the tree of life once and have immortality. They would go back to the tree of life continuously. As aging occurred, they would go back and be rejuvenated, regenerated continuously. But now, since they're outside of the garden, they are away from the tree of life. They don't have that source of regeneration and they begin to die. And if you look over in the genealogy of Adam in Genesis chapter 5, it's really quite depressing. It goes through each of Adam's descendants. And after the description of each descendant, it says, And he died. 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 Eight times. And he died. And he died. It's all about death. Adam died. And all of his descendants died. Why? Because God is the only source of life. And if you're separate from God, you'll experience spiritual death and then ultimately physical death because all life comes from God. Genesis chapter 3 explains to us why there's so much pain and suffering in the world. And we can't throw it at God's feet. God made creation perfect. He made Adam and Eve perfect. All of creation was good and he made Adam and Eve and he said, this is very good. Mankind is very good. He put them in a perfect environment with perfect bodies. And then Adam, as a free moral agent, chose to rebel against the authority of God. He brought sin into the universe, into human experience. And because he was the representative, he was the heir who would rule over all of creation, all of creation, not just men and women, but all of creation was affected by his choice And now we live with that legacy, what I describe as the legacy of sin that affects each and every one of our lives, our our relationships, our daily experience is fallen under this legacy of sin. I want you to read with me. In Romans chapter 5, it describes this. For as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. That is, we do not become sinners the moment that we sin. We are born sinners. Sinners. And we sin because we are born as sinners, or as he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22, as in Adam all die. 
We are born dead in our transgressions. We're born separated. Remember, Adam and Eve didn't have an internal source of temptation, so to speak. There wasn't any internal longing or desire to rebel against God. That temptation had to come from outside of them. It came from Satan. But the moment that they obeyed the temptation, they began to die. They died spiritually, they died physically, and then they transmitted death to us. And so we are born dead. They're born spiritually separated. And if the spiritual problem isn't solved, we will remain forever separated from God. And we will all inevitably physically die because God is the only source of life. They brought death into our experience. What does this mean? Well, in simple terms, uh, it means that you don't have to teach a baby to be selfish. And you don't have to learn how to become selfish. They were all born, just as Adam experienced on that first moment, the first day after his sin, he experienced Genesis 3.10. I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked so I hid myself. We're born into the world just thinking of ourselves. Promoting ourselves, protecting ourselves. That's what it means to be born in sin. I have a friend who I was teaching Genesis a couple years ago and he sent me what is really, I think, a remarkable quote. It's by a woman named Beatrice Webb. She was one of the architects of British socialism. And she wrote this in 1925. In 1925, she said, Somewhere in my diary, 1890, I wrote, I have staked all on the essential goodness of human nature. Now, 35 years later, I realize how permanent are the evil impulses and instincts in man. How little you can count on changing some of these, for instance, the appeal of wealth and power, by any change in the social machinery, no amount of knowledge or science will be of any avail unless we can curb the bad impulse. (laughs) Of course, she did not believe in God. So how can we curb the bad impulse? What she has stumbled upon is what Christians describe as total depravity. That that something in us that longs to live independently from God, that longs to think only of ourselves and of no one else. Total depravity does not mean that we are as bad as we could possibly be or that we give in to every temptation and that we're not capable of doing any good for a fellow man. It means that we are totally affected by the fall. Your mind, your emotions, your will are affected by the fall. You can't trust your thinking entirely. You won't always reason correctly. Your emotions will not be correct in corresponding to the circumstances because they will be influenced by your extreme self-centeredness. Your will cannot be trusted. It will not always be strong. It will fail you at times or you will choose the evil instead of the good. Mind, emotions, will, body. Everything about you has been damaged by the fall. You still bear the image of God. The image of God is not destroyed in you, but every part of the image of God has been damaged. Rather than desiring to reflect the very character of God, you want to reflect your own character. You want to make a name for yourself. You want to advance your cause. Unless you feel guilty, I include myself in that. That's the, the you, plural. All of us, every man, every woman, every child. We're broken. Our greatest problem is death. Spiritual separation that will inevitably lead to 
a physical separation of body and spirit, which we call physical death, we're broken. And we can't solve it through education, through technology, through any social programs. Does that mean as Christians we should do no good in culture? No, we should. We should. We should jump in because when we do so, we are reflecting the image of God. But we need to have realistic expectations. What's broken, mankind cannot fix. Only God can fix. J.M. and B.L. Milne described it like this. Total depravity means this. There is no area or aspect of human life which is absolved from the somber effects of man's fallenness. And because we are fallen, we can't get up. We cannot lift ourselves. Genesis chapter 3 is, it's really dark. And honestly, for the next several weeks, it's, the messages are, are pretty dark. They're pretty heavy. Next week, we're going to talk about how sin influences a family and then a culture. And, you know, until we hit chapter 12 and we start kind of the new section on our series, just, I mean, it's, it's rough going. Make sure you have your coffee and, you know, something sweet beforehand. Just kind of lift your spirits a bit because it's dark. However, in the midst of all of this darkness in Genesis chapter 3, God offers hope. Right? He doesn't just destroy Adam and Eve and destroy creation. He doesn't, just, he doesn't just walk away because we've introduced sin into the equation. God immediately begins to intervene to solve the problem. Look at me in Genesis chapter 3. Verse 9. It says, Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Did God not know? Well, of course he knew, right? God is omniscient. He sees all. Genesis chapter 4, he's going to come to Cain and he's going to say, Cain, where are you? It's, it's, it's not a genuine question in the sense that God is confused about Adam or Cain's geographic location, it is an invitation. Okay, God is seeking. Adam is hiding. Eve is hiding. Cain will hide because we always hide when we sin because sin produces fear and shame. And yet God doesn't leave us there. God doesn't leave us there. When we sin and we give in to temptation, we listen to Satan's lie. God doesn't want you any longer. You should hide because he doesn't want to be with you. And instead, God is chasing, God is seeking. That is the definition of grace. God initiates with us when we cannot initiate with him because we're so broken. We seek only because God has sought us. Our nature as broken people is to hide, but God seeks. God seeks after Adam, and then God makes a promise. God promises to set all things right. Notice with me Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. God comes first to the serpent and he says, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all of the cattle and more than every beast of the field on your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life and I will put enmity between you and the woman. It starts very, very personal and very individual. Eve won't like snakes, right? (laughs) Eve won't like snakes. But, but is that all he's talking about? No, he, he gives us a hint that it's, it's much more than that. He says, there also will be enmity between your seed and her seed. So does that just mean that normal people won't like snakes? Which is true, right? Normal people don't like snakes. And if you do like snakes, don't tell me. Don't argue the point afterwards. I'll just tell you, you're not right. right? That, 
But is that all he's talking about? No, he's saying there's going to be a generational conflict between those who come forth from Eve and those who come forth from the serpent. And we know from the book of Revelation that the serpent was animated by Satan himself. It says, the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was animating and he was energizing this viper in the garden. It's not just about snakes and people. Because snakes actually don't eat dirt. Right? They don't eat dirt. That's a metaphor for humiliation. We even have it in our vocabulary today. Eat dirt. Right? It's a metaphor for humiliation. And in that day, it was a metaphor for being returned to the, the netherworld. Your destiny is destruction, he is saying to the serpent, who is actually Satan. And there's going to be a conflict among your generations. And we're going to begin to see that conflict worked out as we work our way through the book of Genesis. There will be those who follow Satan, demonic forces, but also people, and those who choose to follow God. There will be kingdoms in conflict. And this is what Jesus was talking about in John chapter 8 when he said, You, to the Pharisees, you are of your father the devil, you are his seed. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. How did he murder? He tempted them and brought death into their experience. He was a murderer from the beginning. He is a liar and the father of lies. The father of the grand lie that you can be God when you cannot. There will be a conflict between your seed and his seed. There will be kingdoms in conflict. But... He, singular, one seed from among your seed, will do battle with the serpent and he will crush him or bruise him on the head, but the serpent will bruise him on the heel. That's the first hint of the gospel. Okay, in the midst of, of all of this chaos and destruction, cursing coming into the world, we get the first hint of the gospel. When a viper bites the heel of a man, it kills him. But when a man crushes the head of a viper, it kills the viper. In other words, there will be one who is a man who will destroy your enemy and in the process, lose his life. That is Jesus Christ. This is the first hint of the gospel. That one will come from the seed of the woman and he will give his life to destroy our enemy. And so we will see the serpent constantly going after the seed of woman, trying to destroy mankind, trying to destroy God's chosen seed through Abraham. We see it reflected in the book of Esther. We see it reflected in Herod, killing the child, trying to kill the child. We see it in the pogroms in Russia. We see it in the Holocaust. He will go after the seed, but that seed will conquer. And at the cross, Jesus Christ gave his life But he dealt a mortal blow to Satan. He demonstrated very clearly that God will be victorious. And so we have hope. And so the chapter ends like this. God makes a provision. Adam and Eve are about to go out into thorns and thistles. And all that they've got is fig leaves. God recognizes that they're broken, that they're fallen, and that they're inadequately clothed 
for this broken and fallen world that they're about to enter into. And so he makes a sacrifice. He takes skins of animals. God causes a death. Blood is shed because man has sinned. And we see the first sacrifice. We see the first principle of a death coming because of sin. The whole sacrificial system will start from this point and move forward until it's culminated in Jesus Christ who will give his very life to cover over or to clothe us because we are naked and ashamed and broken in our sin. And perhaps this morning you need to come to God for the first time and say, God, yes, I do feel, I do feel ashamed of my sin. I, I have guilt. And I try to do good, but it doesn't seem to remove the guilt that I feel for my sin. Maybe for the first time you need to come to God and say, God, thank you that you gave Jesus to cover over the shame that I have felt because of my sin. Notice that they cannot clothe themselves adequately. They do not even know how to. It is God who takes the initiative and God who clothes Adam and Eve. And it is God who can clothe you through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. All that you have to do is say, God, thank you. I accept. Clothe me in Christ. When you do that, God removes the entire debt of your sin. Past, present, and future. You belong to God forever. You don't have to fear death any longer. You will have life that lasts forever. Let me encourage you, if you've never made that decision, to go before the Lord this morning and say, God, thank you for Jesus. I accept. Or maybe this morning you just need to be reminded of how broken and fallen each of us is and how we cannot restore ourselves. But thanks be to God that he has given us Jesus. I want you to take a few moments quietly. Let's... Quietly just meditate for a moment and give God thanks that even in the midst of a broken and fallen world, he has clothed us with Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that you have not abandoned us in our broken state, but instead you have sought us out when we were hiding and you found us in Jesus. Father, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for his incredible sacrifice on our behalf. Thank you, Father, that you have revealed and accomplished your plan. Father, I pray that you'd fill us with hearts of gratitude. I pray, Father, that you'd give us minds that are also sober, that we, we begin to recognize Satan's temptation and our vulnerability. And we squarely look at the consequences of sin, turn away and choose righteousness because you have conquered sin in Christ. It's in his powerful name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. This is Matt Morton here with Brian Fisher and Blake Jennings, and we are following up on the sermons from Genesis 3, and the uh, topic is sin, evil, depravity. Uh, we record these on Monday morning, and as we were talking earlier, we all agreed there's no better time to talk about evil and evil days than Monday morning. So here we are. Uh, so we are going to start really by tossing out a couple of questions and thoughts from uh, your sermon this past Sunday, which was October 20th, on the consequences of sin and death. Uh, Blake and Brian, you guys both talked about depravity yesterday, the idea that we are 
born sinners and that our status as sinners really is the reason why we sin. Uh, Blake, you mentioned while we were preparing for this, that was really a pretty highly debated concept in the early church. So walk us through why. Why did people debate the idea of human beings as sinners naturally? And why does that even matter? Why do we need to know about that history of that debate? Sure. Uh, when you look at the history of this debate, it's actually, we kind of glossed over it. The church has been fighting over the question of depravity for the last couple thousand years. The most famous round of, of the debate was between two men back in the 300s about. You had a British monk named Pelagius uh, who was debating the issue of depravity with a pastor theologian named Augustine. And Pelagius denied depravity. He believed that human beings stand on their own two feet. So we're not sinners by nature. We didn't inherit original sin from Adam. We, like Adam and Eve in the garden, are able to freely choose whether we want to obey God or not. So all that we need in life is someone to show us what to do. That's where God's word and God's son fit in for Pelagius. He believed that God's word simply was there to tell us what to do, and God's son came to earth simply to show us what to do. His death on the cross was merely an example for us. So uh, Pelagius's view of salvation was pretty low. You don't really need to be saved. You just need to be helped. You just need to be shown what to do. Augustine disagreed, so he read passages, we talked about these yesterday, like Romans 5.19, as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, or Ephesians 2.1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and those passages led him to embrace this concept that we now call depravity. Uh, Augustine responded to Pelagius, he did not hold that we are able to stand on our own two feet. We're not standing at all. We're not even crawling on the ground. He believed we're completely dead. We're completely broken and in bondage to sin. Sin owns us from the moment that we're born, we are bent towards sin. So we don't just need God to tell us what to do. We need him to save us. We need him to deliver us from our bondage to sin. And so for Augustine, salvation is all about grace. It's not about anything that we do because we can't possibly earn our salvation. We need God to step in in, a, in, a, in an amazing way, and that's what he did through Jesus Christ. So the church has debated this, and the reason why it has been such a debate is because all of your understanding of the death of Jesus and all of your understanding of the nature of salvation hinge on whether you hold to depravity or not. So really important debate uh, that played out in the history of the church, a fascinating subject. For us, we wanted to just present during this message how that fits into Genesis 3 and how that affects us today. Yeah, and for those listening, when Blake says Augustine, you might also say Augustine. So certainly... <laughs> if you a, were in, in in error, you might say it that way. <laughs> a big part of the history of this debate really is just how to pronounce that name. Um, Thanks for contributing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, let, me, let me interject as well. You, you see uh, Pelagian thinking in the more liberal branches of the church today. So Jesus as a substitutionary payment for our sin is not taught in the liberal branches. It's not... Uh, emphasize it's not important. What's important about Christ is Christ is a, a good man, an ethical teacher, as an example of how to live. Consequently, the the emphasis not on preaching the gospel uh, to get men's penalty for sin paid for through Jesus Christ, but social action, help people improve their lot in life, help them learn to make better choices in life. So we see Pelagianism played out there. We see uh, even some 
continuing debate about the nature of total depravity within more evangelical circles as well, because your your very strong five point Calvinists would argue that total depravity means total inability. That is, mankind cannot respond to God's initiation until God regenerates a man. And then once the person is regenerated, then they believe and they are saved. Whereas we would argue, no, mankind can respond because God is initiating with mankind. As, as it says in John, Jesus, Jesus says, um, I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men to myself. The spirit is working and drawing people to himself. So what God requires is faith and men can respond in faith. They can respond and accept Christ's free offer, even though we are completely affected mind, emotion, and will by the fall. So Augustine would argue that at least in some sense, you and I are held accountable for Adam's sin. And one of the questions that flows from that discussion, and Brian, I'd love if you would address this, is isn't that unfair? Why am I being held accountable for something that Adam did before I was even born or had a choice in the matter? I suppose if we define fairness as God treating each person exactly the same, then we would have to say, no, God is not fair because we are each born into different bodies, different families with different capacities in different eras of history. So we each have a unique experience in that respect. Uh, God doesn't treat each person exactly the same. So the alternative to Adam representing us would be that we each represent ourselves. So we each would be tested individually, tempted individually, and either stand or fall individually. And I can confidently say that I would not pass that test. <laughs> In my, my more arrogant moments, I might like to say, yeah, I could, I could have passed the test that Adam faced in the garden. But the fact is, I couldn't. And I prove that the fact that I couldn't every day when I sin. As believers, we know we have the Spirit of God. So we actually have the capacity to choose not to sin, to choose righteousness at each moment of temptation. And yet we do not always. We, In other words, we validate the fact that if we had been in Adam's place, we would have sinned as well. So God designated Adam as our representative. And so his fall, his sin, became our sin. That's what plunged us into depravity. So that's why we're born sinners. So uh, a simple analogy would be that we, we live in America. We live in a representative democracy. We vote certain men and women to represent us in Austin. We're here in Texas or in Washington. So those men and women go and they place a single vote, but that single vote counts for many people. We don't all go to Washington. We send the representative. Representative votes on our behalf. Adam sinned and sinned on our behalf. And the New Testament tells us that in a similar way, God designated Jesus Christ, his son, to be also our representative. So he didn't have to die singularly and individually for each one of us because we didn't sin or go through the fall individually. He dies as uh, as the representative for all of mankind, one death for all sins, for all time. Great. Yeah. And nobody complains about the supposed unfairness of Jesus as our representative, right? Because certainly I am granted the righteousness of Jesus Christ because of what he did on my behalf. I haven't earned it. On the other hand, uh, it could be fairly said that I have earned also the guilt that uh, I see in Adam, that Adam is sinful. And yes, I inherited 
a degree of sin nature from Adam, but I am sinful on my own. I've also made sinful choices. Um, I want to shift gears for just a moment before we wrap up. Both of y'all talked about the consequences of sin and the effects of sin in our lives yesterday. Uh, One of the questions that I have, and I'm sure many others then, is, okay, what about those sins that don't seem to have immediate consequences? Uh, Certainly, if I attack somebody, if I steal something, there will be immediate legal consequences, relational consequences. On the other hand, there's all kinds of sins that people struggle with that they don't really seem to hurt anybody else. If I uh, covet my neighbor's house, uh, you know, I violated one of the Ten Commandments. I have broken the laws of God's holiness, and yet nobody seems to really be hurt by that immediately. It stays inside of my heart and mind. Some would say something similar about pornography, for example. Who am I really hurting when I look at something? Uh, It's not as if I'm actually hurting another individual. It's a choice that I make. So what do we do with those sins that don't seem to have visible or immediate consequences? I'll just open that up for you guys to talk about. Well, I think uh, immediately of that passage in Ecclesiastes that says, in effect, because justice doesn't come quickly or the, the sentence against evil doesn't come immediately, therefore the hearts of men grow cold toward God and they grow inclined toward greater evil. In other words, sometimes when we don't see that Im- that immediate consequence of sin, our character begins to drift more and more toward that sin. In other words, we begin to die a slow death. It might not be an immediate death. In, in a similar way, uh, Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden. They didn't die physically the moment that they sinned, but they did begin to die physically, a slow death. And sin affects us the same way. It begins to uh, cause degeneration of our character. And so we may not see an immediate effect on ourselves or on others. We may be able to hide the consequences for a time, but it it will undermine who we are. Yeah, I, I like to take people to Romans six sixteen when I'm asked that question. Paul says, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? I think what Paul is telling us is that every choice that we make leads invariably one of two directions, either towards a habit of righteousness or a habit of sin. I think that Paul is getting to the, you know, he's getting kind of behind the the, uh, the science that we now know about how habits are formed and how they become addictions. When you choose sin, like a, a sin that you don't think hurts anyone, like like pornography, for example, we now have quite a body of scientific evidence that demonstrates that by choosing pornography today, I make that desire stronger tomorrow. And in fact, not only is the desire stronger, but the level that a person is tempted to go is deeper. And that's how all sins work. When you choose sin, it makes you a slave of sin and it leads you down a path of death. I think it's helpful what Brian said. Adam and Eve didn't die on the spot, but death became unavoidable because of sin. And that's exactly what happens to us. So every day you face a choice, um, whether you're going to walk down the path that leads towards righteousness, leads towards building habits of righteousness, or the path that leads towards death, that builds habits and addictions of sin. Yeah, and I was thinking about an illustration even from when I was taking driver's ed. I remember as we were driving down the road, the instructor kept saying, keep your eyes focused forward because as soon as you turn your eyes to the right or the left, you won't even realize it, but your hands will start to drift over to that other lane. And so as soon as I 
direct my attention towards sinful thoughts. If I constantly say, I want what my neighbor has, for example, I have to have his house, his job, his car, without even realizing it perhaps over time, I can begin to adjust my actions as well to grasp at what God has not given. And so my heart drives what my body does and what my words say. And so there's a very real sense uh, in which the heart is where all of these sins stem from, even if the consequences are not immediately apparent. So. Yeah, Paul says, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. It, it, we could also translate that, let, let your mindset be on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. That is my orientation in life. Because if what I, I, I meditate upon, I think about, I begin to be drawn toward, I set my affections on, I begin to love that thing, then uh, it shapes my character, my personality, and ultimately the choices that I make, which determine my destiny in life. And I really have just one of two paths, a, a path of life and righteousness following God or a path of death. Great. And we will close on that thought. Great exhortation for this Monday morning. I uh, hope that you have a wonderful week. And as always, go to our website, grace-bible.org, for more information and resources.